Hi everybody, welcome to this episode of the Heart Podcast. Today I'm delighted to be talking to Professor Sven Plein from the University of Leeds. Sven is a recognized international expert in cardiac MRI. We talk about a recent review that he's published in Heart, and we also highlight opportunities for trainees who want to learn more about cardiac MRI and discuss a day in the life of an academic cardiologist with an interest in cardiac MRI. I hope you enjoy the show. So thanks very much indeed, uh, Professor Plein. Thank you for joining me today. Maybe I can start with asking you to introduce yourself. Uh, where do you work and what do you do? Yeah, thank you very much for the invitation. Very exciting to talk to you today. Uh, my name is Sven Plein. I'm a, a British Heart Foundation Professor of Cardiovascular Imaging. My main practice is in Leeds. I also work um, a day a week at King's College in London. And I'm, I'm a bit of both. I'm a clinical academic. So I do um, lead the clinical catechomized service in Leeds, but I also um, lead a, a large research group, which is mostly focused on cardiac MI, but also does uh, other imaging. Thank you very much. And thanks for joining us today. And I wanted to get you on, uh, Prof, because you've just recently written a very timely review, which is called Cardiac MRI, New and Emerging Techniques and Applications. Um, for those listeners who aren't as familiar with, as you are with current CMR practice, perhaps you can give us a, a sort of a, a snapshot of what a typical, maybe ischemic heart disease clinical CMR study looks like, how long does it take, uh, and what kind of information can we generally derive from it? We, in Leeds, do about 2,500 clinical cardiac MRIs, about, I would say, about 40% of those for ischemic heart disease, particularly the question of inducible ischemia. Uh, then a large chunk of uh, viability testing, so looking at the presence of scar infarction, and then a lot of scans and cardiomyopathy, uh, and a few on other things like pericardium, aorta, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Uh, so there isn't probably a standard cardiac MR protocol that covers all of those things. So cardiac MR is very versatile, and depending on what the clinical question is, the protocol will be uh, will be varied. Uh, but there are some sort of basic commonalities between all the scans that we do. Uh, so every scan starts with some anatomical overviews. So they're really quick pictures that you take that show you uh, the thorax, typically from the from the neck to the upper abdomen uh, in, in very quick, very thick um, sections and three orthogonal planes. This just helps us to identify where the heart is because not everybody's heart is on the left-hand side and not everybody's heart is in the same uh, <laughs> angulation. So we use that just to orientate ourselves, but it also gives us a bit of an overview of other things that happen in the body. So we can see lung lesions, we can see uh, upper abdominal lesions sometimes, the kidneys are sometimes included. So we often see uh, yeah, kidney cysts, liver cysts, uh, thyroid abnormalities, so lung, lung tumors and other things. Uh, then from there, we typically acquire uh, orthogonal cine images. That's very much like 2D echo, um, just that the imaging planes are not sort of taken on the fly and planned on the fly, but you use images that we've taken before to then identify uh, and plan the subsequent planes from the images already acquired. So you sort of take a line across, a section across what you can see on the previous images, which makes these images very reproducible. So we always get, as long as the radiographs know what they're doing, a perfect two-chamber, four-chamber, and alpha track view. Uh, for a stress protocol, we would then typically move on to doing the stress. 
and that's typically adenosine stress. So we use adenosine in the UK. There's also diperidamol or regadenosine. Uh, adenosine has the advantage of being very, very um, safe and it's got, got a very short half-life. So we in, infuse it peripherally at 140 mics per kilogram per minute for three minutes. Uh, increase the dose if there isn't a response. And if there are any side effects, typically what you do is just stop it and then the side effects go away within, within seconds. Um, so that's done for three minutes. Now we inject a contrast medication, which is the, the same contrast medication that we use in MRI for all sorts of other indications, brain, um, lungs, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, and then we can measure myocardial perfusion at stress. Uh, thereafter, we would normally perform cine images of the whole heart to assess left and right ventricular size and function. Um, sometimes we then perform a rest perfusion scan, but not always. If we're happy that the stress perfusion images are normal or clearly abnormal, we don't normally need the rest. Just if you want a comparison between stress and rest, then we do the, some rest images. Uh, and then we finish off with what's called late gadolinium enhancement. Uh, that's a type of scan that shows us scar or fibrosis, focal fibrosis in the heart. Uh, it's very briefly, the way this works is that when you give these contrast agents, they tend to linger in the extracellular space. And if you have an expanded extracellular space, for example, because there's a heart attack or some other focal fibrosis from myocarditis or sarcoid infiltration, the gadolinium would hang around in those areas. And then with the pictures we take at the end of the scan, we can identify those spots. Uh, where the late guard is, is lingering. And that's probably the most revolutioning um, MR technique that's come out in the last 10, 15 years, because no, there's no other technique that can show you scars with the same clarity, uh, detail, and spatial resolution as the late guard. So all of that is typically done in about 45 minutes. Um, I may say that when I'm on the scanner, it takes... 25 <laughs> because <laughs> I, I try and do it really fast. Um, but uh, when it's sort of done in a casual way, you can still do all of this in 45 minutes. Okay. And just for context, roughly how many studies, how many CMR studies are performed every year in the UK? Do you have any info on that? Yeah, the UK is, is very strong cardiac MR. So the UK is probably per population, one of the highest densities of cardiac MR scanners, units, experts, and, and scans. Um, there was a survey published by the British Society for Cardiac uh, Magnetic Resonance uh, just recently in HART, uh, and that showed, I think there's 117,000 scans were done in 2018 in the UK. That doesn't sound a lot, and if you compare it to other MRI investigations, still only, I think, about 5% of all the MRI scans that are done in the UK, so it's not a massive number. Uh, but it has grown by, I think, around 10% year on year. Uh, the survey was done some years ago, and the, both the number of centers has gone up to, I believe, now around 84, uh, but also the number of scans in the UK uh, is growing every year. And that's partly because the guideline indications for cardiac MR have expanded um, the latest, pr pretty much every of the latest guidelines by the ESC and the American colleges um, now includes a recommendation for cardiac MR. Uh, and as MR becomes more established, more of those indications become at level one. Um, so as a result of that, people obviously also then use cardiac MR more and more for clinical indications. And what would you say is the limiting factor to, to not having more scans performed per year? Do you think it's, is it a cost factor? Is it insufficient radiographers, uh, consultants, doctors, uh, machines, or a combination of all of those, do you think? 
Yeah, so in the UK, situations are again a little bit different to other countries. In many other countries, it's reimbursement mm. uh, because reimbursement in the US, for example, is a real problem. Um, it's very poorly reimbursed. In some countries, there's a um, conflict between radiologists and cardiologists, which luckily in the UK, we don't have. Um, so in the UK, it's very much around um, having dedicated scanners, having people who are keen to do it. Um, and yeah, I, th I think we're in a very comfortable position in the UK. So we are growing and there's lots of keen people and it's a very well-established modality in the UK. Uh, but also, I mean, the 5% compared to, to general MRI also means there are a lot of uh, other indications for MRI in general. It doesn't necessarily mean that we're not doing enough cardiac MRI scans mm. just uh, compared with neuro and other indications. Is, um, um, and of course, we have a lot of other cardiovascular investigations that are equally important and useful, like CT, echo, et cetera, which doesn't necessarily exist for, for brain imaging or, or imaging of the legs and joints, et cetera. Right, absolutely. And let's move on to discuss this uh, most recent review, uh, which does focus on much more cutting-edge techniques that are not yet mainstream. Uh, the first thing you talk about is 4D flow CMR. Uh, what is that, Sven, and how might it be used in, in practice? Yeah, the purpose of the review was slightly different. So it wasn't to take people through a bread-and-butter cardiac MR protocol and indication. I think that's been reviewed previously in the journal yeah. uh, and, and other issues. So the intention here was to look at what's maybe around the corner, um, not quite a clinical practice yet. And that's the thing that I find exciting about MRI and cardiac MRI in particular. There's always something new. So I've been doing this for about 20, 25 years now. And in that time, uh, so many new things have come along. And it seems almost limitless, the amount of um, new inventions and technology uh, modifications that MRI uh, has the ability to provide. And then... Uh, we can use those technological advances to look at new things and uh, and uh, yeah find out uh, different things and look at the heart in different ways. So one of those is 4D flow, uh, and the name implies it's not like standard flow imaging. Uh, MR and MR in general uh, does flow imaging very well and has done this for I guess forever for for, for 30 years or more. Uh, typically, we prescribe a, a 2D plane that if we wanted to measure flow in the aorta, would cut orthogonal to the um, ascending aorta, for example, and then we would measure the flow across that imaging plane. Uh, and with the flow comes the velocity. But with that single plane um, come some limitations. Uh, of course, the heart moves through the cardiac cycle, so there's some through plane motion. Uh, and if you want to image the flow in the aorta and the pulmonary artery, perhaps the branch pulmonary arteries and somewhere else, then you have to do several different acquisitions and then, you know, you may not necessarily be able to compare them all. Uh, so 4D flow means that we're taking a flow image that considers three flow directions and it does it in a time-resolved fashion. So that's the four dimensions. Uh, so we can uh, acquire a 3D volume. So instead of just having one plane that runs through the area of interest, we take an image that covers, for example, the entire heart and aorta. Uh, and then we uh, have that big data set, and that also gives us then flow in all the directions um, possible. 
So it's kind of implicit in that, that this takes quite a long time because mm. <laughs> they're crying <laughs> a massive amount of data, which is why this is relatively recent because in the past it would just have taken forever to acquire this. But look, there's lots of technology tricks we can now do an acquisition like this in about yeah five to eight minutes. Okay. Uh, and that then gives you a whole data set of the entire heart. And if you know Echo, uh, you know, we can do a 3D uh, flow now with Echo. Um, and it's a little bit similar to that, but you can, after you've acquired all of this data, you can reconstruct it in any way that you like. So you can put an imaging plane over the mitral valve. You can also slice follow than the mitral valve. It's very exciting. So you can get rid of the, um, the, um, the through plane motion. Um, you can also look at, um, uh, track the, the, the flow by um, particle tracking. So you can have pretend particles that enter the heart, for example, in, on the right side, you can track them how they spiral through the different heart chambers. Wow. And this can all be done post post acquisition. You, you can, uh, yeah. as you said, you go back and prescribe planes anywhere you like. That's fantastic. Yeah. There are now uh, several softwares, uh, professional softwares that allow you to analyze the images in this way. Uh, and it's all still a little bit time consuming and it's a little bit sort of early days. Uh, but there are really clear advantages. For example, as I said, you can measure the flow in all the valves, so it's much more accurate than in, uh, in assessing um, shunts, for example. Um, and you, can, you see very nicely um, abnormalities in, in flow, for example, in bicuspid aortic valves. There's, there's the tortuosity in the ascending aorta, which links with the shear stress on the walls and the risk of dilatation of the aortic wood. So a lot of research applications at the moment, but it's one of those things that I expect to transition into a clinical practice uh, relatively soon. The technology is there, uh, post-processing is getting there, uh, and it is really a, a step change to what we used to do uh, in, the, in just the recent past. Fantastic. And let's move on to the second uh, area that you highlight in the review, which is diffusion tensor imaging. I've heard of this being done in oncology, for sure, uh, in MR, but how's it, uh, how's it used in cardiac MR? Yeah, it's another one of those things where cardiac MR always seems to come later than other organs, and that's because the heart moves so much. So many things that are technologically challenging in, in other organs already uh, and take long imaging times in the brain or in other body parts, if you then translate them to the heart, you have the additional challenge of accounting for cardiac motion. Uh, so DTI, diffusion tense imaging, has been around for quite a long time in the brain, uh, in oncology. Uh, and it's now with uh, speed up of acquisition and with, uh, with yeah, just advancing technology, it's also making its way into the heart. But perhaps unlike 4D flow, still a little bit earlier or quite a lot earlier uh, uh, when you're thinking about clinical application. But another unique technique that you can't really do with any other um, imaging modality. So how's this done? Um, well, there is um, within the microstructure of any organ, there is a diffusion that happens along the main structures within that organ. So in that, the heart's got a microarchitecture, um, fibers that run in different directions, depending whether you're subendocardial, mid or epicardial, as I think most people know. And then you can imagine that water diffuses, uh, not freely within the heart, but it's bound by those structures. So it can't diffuse as it wishes, but it can only go along the main uh, architecture of the heart. And this is basically what DTI picks up. So we pick up the signal of the diffusion of the water uh, in the heart. And then if it works well, and again, the acquisition is sort of in the order of five to 10 minutes, um, 
and you can see images that show you uh, this microarchitecture um, and, and you can pick up the different fiber orientations. In the brain, this is used, um, for example, to, to track the direction of nerves, uh, to see when there's, when there's cancer, when there's tumors, how, how, how nerve fibers track around those or through the, through the cancer. Uh, in the heart, the interest is more in uh, disruptive cardiomyopathies that change uh, the architecture of the heart. Uh, hypertrophic cardiomyopathy changes uh, the architecture a lot. Uh, of course, myocardial infarction does the same. Uh, and there's a lot of interest in research around how this disruption of the natural microstructure of the heart, the normal microstructure, might be related to the um, uh, origin of arrhythmias, of adverse remodeling, uh, and clinical outcome. So we do um, a fairly large study in Leeds, BHF uh, funded, uh, with my colleague Erica Dal Amelina. Uh, who's looking at the effects of uh, myocardial infarction on diffusion tensor imaging. And I know that colleagues at the Brompton have a major interest in hypertrophic cardiomyopathy, uh, congenital heart disease. Uh, and again, things that are on the horizon, uh, when and if they make it into clinical practice, I think we'll have to see there's a little bit more work to do until we get there. And one area that certainly is making it into clinical practice, I would say, uh, for many, many different, or in many, many different specialties, including oncology and brain imaging, uh, is PET MR imaging. Uh, how do you see this uh, spinning out in heart disease, Sven? Again, maybe early days, but where do you see uh, the uh, uh, applications of this technique uh, in cardiology? Yeah, so the, the, probably the one application currently people would say is, is certain is, is infiltrative heart disease, sarcoidosis, where both PET and MR are recommended uh, to be used uh, independently. But there's some, some real... Um, advantage in having a single modality that can look at both the um, uh, the inflammation um, that you can see with PET and then the uh, corresponding fibrotic abnormalities, the, uh, the infiltration I mentioned earlier with the late gallium enhancement that you get from, from cardiac MRI. Uh, in other applications, there is little evidence so far that the PET-MR combined assessment offers much benefit over separate imaging with MRI or PET, uh, but you can see applications also in ischemic heart disease uh, using uh, the, the uh, abilities of PET and again, combining them with the lacrolydium enhancement imaging of SCAR, for example, of left ventricular function. There's synergy because you can use the MRI to, um, to correct the, the, the PET images, which conventionally is done with CT, so another benefit is that you reduce radiation burden by doing PET-MR rather than PET-CT, which then in turn allows you to do, use more PET imaging in, in cardiology as well. And when we talked about the numbers for cardiac MRI, the numbers for cardiac PET in the UK are, are minimal. Uh, and I guess one of the reasons for that is uh, availability, but there's also cost and radiation dose. And one of the benefits, as I mentioned, of cardiac MR uh, combined with PET here is uh, a lower radiation dose. Not necessarily, unfortunately, lower cost because <laughs> the PET-MR machines are expensive. Uh, so this is a bit of a challenging area, but um, for, for many reasons, um, including you need specialists and experts in PET and MR to come together. So currently this is only done in a small number of centers, but uh, with very intriguing results. And let's take a, a step back, if we may, in the last uh, five minutes or so. Maybe you could tell the listeners what important developments have, have happened in cardiac MR during your career. Uh, what, what things have really changed the game? I mean, you've already mentioned late gadolinium enhancement. 
Uh, but what other things have come along that you know have really uh, piqued your interest and perhaps uh, changed things uh, for the good uh, over the last 20, 25 years? So the biggest thing that's happened is perhaps not a single technological innovation, because if you think back uh, to what we did 20 years ago, um, with the exception of really good lead gallium enhancement, most of the methods we use today in clinical practice were already there 20 years ago. But what was lacking was the evidence. Okay. So what we've done very well over the past decade is generate evidence. So there have been large clinical studies in uh, cardiomyopathy, in uh, ischemic heart disease, in perfusion, some of those we've led and others um, that have really put cardiomyopathy on the map. Uh, and 20 years ago, um, guidelines would just mention MRI might be useful, but there's no evidence. Uh, and luckily today we have the evidence for those uh, established methods. Uh, in terms of technical development, Cardicomar today is, is much easier. It's much more reliable. We have very reliable ECGs, uh, certainly at 1.5 Tesla, you stick the ECG on, it works almost every time. Um, we are considerably faster than we used to be. And these are processes that are still ongoing, but they are, um, if, if you compare how we scan today compared to 20 years ago, uh, I think it's reliability, speed, uh, image quality is a little bit better, but it was already quite good, uh, but this took a little bit longer 20 years ago. And um, what advice would you give, uh, Prof, to, to trainees coming through, young cardiology trainees who are thinking about getting more into imaging and particularly into CMR, what would what would you say to them? Are there any learning resources or, or fellowships that you might point them towards? So those who really want to specialize and want to maybe run a cardiac mass service themselves at some point, they need to spend a fair bit of time. Um, and the most successful ways of doing that is to take time out and do a, a degree. Um, there, luckily, there are quite a lot of centers in the UK that offer um, clinical research training fellowships, um, either through internal sources or sometimes uh, by seeking funding from, from the BHF or other funders. Uh, so that would give you two or three years of really intensive um, clinical training, but also research training, gives you some publications, improves your chance of getting a job as a consultant. So that would probably be number one. Uh, some of those are listed through BFCMR on their website. Some of them are a little bit hearsay. Sometimes it's in the BMJ. <clears throat> but it's also looking around which centers do cardiac MRI in the UK from, you know, from PubMed or from other sources, and then just writing to the, the people who do that and express your interest. Um, it's not always easy to get a job for one of those because they're fairly competitive. And when we interview, we always have between 10 and 20 applicants most of them are SD4, 5, or 6, uh, have got an imaging background, have one or two papers. So if you want to distinguish yourself from the, from the crowd, then I would go and just try and get some first-hand experience. So find your, your nearest cardiac MR center, knock on the door and say, look, can I just, you know, can I sit around for a bit and learn from you? Can I do some reporting with you? Uh, use all the web resources that they are, the uh, International Society for Cardiac Magnetic Resonance SCMR has a lot of education material on its website. Becoming a member is really cheap for trainees. Uh, it costs, uh, I don't know, $50, $50 I think. Uh, there's the recording of the meetings. Uh, there's a level one course. BSCMR also offers courses. So there's a lot of opportunities if you just check out what's available from BSCMR and SCMR. As a 
step in. Of course, you can also get clinical training as a registrar from your local cardiac unit. Um, but we all know the realities of clinical training and it can be very difficult to fit that in. Um, that's why I said most people who are serious about it will uh, make that also part of the MD, PhD and then take two or three years out of that training to get properly uh, into it. And finally, Prof, what is it about uh, being an academic uh, CMR consultant that really appeals to you? What is it that's kept your interest all these years? I guess no two days are the same. I mean, you're always doing <laughs> new challenges, uh, coming up with new solutions. Oh, it's exciting every day. It's uh, it's never tedious or boring. <laughs> no, I mean, every every uh, job that you do for a long time uh, becomes repetitive um, to an extent. But uh, as I mentioned, cardiac MR, I find exciting because it's changing rapidly. Um, there's always something new, uh, something to develop. So we do both. We do clinical practice. We do clinical trials. But we also do methods development. And, uh, and, and that's exciting for me just to, you know, try and make something work that didn't work before and try and make something better that worked a little bit, but not quite right. Um, and combining that with clinical practice is quite satisfying because in our unit over the last 20 years, we've always taken the things that we've developed uh, as soon as they're validated also to our NHS patients. Uh, and because of the developments generally uh, making better pictures or giving new insights, as uh, some of which we've discussed today, it's quite satisfying to see the work that you do in research to immediately translate to patients. That's a satisfaction, I guess, that not many uh, academics get because often uh, more laboratory-based uh, research has a long uh, lead time before it makes an impact on patient care. For us, that's almost imminent as soon as it works. We, you know, we've tried out uh, and, and applied to, to, to patients. Um, and it's satisfying to see that. And I also have an aesthetic pleasure from seeing a beautiful image. So if we, if we take <laughs> an image that's, that's really you know, impressive, I mean, sadly, often it represents an abnormality for the, for the patient, but being able to take an exquisite picture of it and, and then showing uh, the relevance um, or a facet of the abnormality that wasn't previously visible has a, has a sort of aesthetic appeal as well. So you're an artist at heart. Fantastic. <laughs> well, thank you so much indeed uh, for, for taking part. It's been really interesting to talk to you, Sven. And uh, I will make the paper free for several weeks after the podcast drops if it's not already free. And I will encourage people to, uh, to read it. The figures in there, as you suggest, are, are really strong. And there's a really nice table as well, which highlights the uh, advantages and disadvantages of each of the techniques you mentioned in the review. So thanks very much for your time. It's been a real pleasure. Thank you.